this week's edition of Joe's Media Corner. Very sensitive, very serious topic. We're dealing with the death, of assumed murder of Jamal Khashoggi. He, of course, is the columnist, uh, contributor from the Washington Post, who is believed to have been captured and murdered by Saudi Arabian officials, people representing the government in Saudi Arabia. He went into the Saudi consulate in Turkey several days ago, never returned, believed he was not only murdered, his body dismembered and taken away. This is a very serious, offensive moment for any journalist or any uh, American who deals with journalism, who counts on reporters to cover news overseas. That's also something that's been in uh, decline, the amount of foreign coverage we uh, are able to get. And part of that is because of the dangers. Part of it is the financing. But to see what's been going on with this situation is heartbreaking and actually, frankly, making me very angry that reporters have to be put in this kind of harm's way. Of course, you look at the statistics from the Committee to Protect Journalists that there are 44 confirmed murders of reporters so far this year in 2018. That's only two less than all of last year and only six fewer than the year before. The Committee to Protect Journalists estimates more than 1,300 journalists have been killed since 1992. We're going to talk about that with two real experts on the issue. First, Robert Mahoney. He's the deputy director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He's going to tell us all about the uh, story behind Khashoggi's disappearance, what he was doing there as a reporter, a columnist, exposing government abuse, uh, government corruption, and how that brought to him his final demise unfairly. And then we have Thomas Lippmann, He's an author and Saudi Arabian expert, as well as a former Middle East reporter and bureau chief for the Washington Post going back several decades. He has great insight into what the situation is now, what it was like for him, how the Saudi government treats reporters both from inside and outside its uh, borders, and a lot of insight into what the latest news is as we're hearing about this, about Jamal Khashoggi. So let's uh, first listen to that interview with Robert Mahoney. And hello, Robert. Are you there? Yes. Thank you for uh, talking to us. Of course, you are the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, a wonderful uh, worldwide agency that handles all kinds of journalism rights, journalism safety. Unfortunately, issues we're talking about is Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, Washington Post correspondent, columnist, who was abducted and now is is feared and likely uh, murdered. And it's obviously been a great source of discussion and debate and uh, people urging our country to uh, both increase sanctions and investigations. What what do you know at this point of what occurred in that case and what's been the response in both the U.S. news world and international news? Well, I think the the only thing that we know for certain is that two weeks ago, uh, Jamal walked into the Turkish consulate uh, sorry, Jamal walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey, in Istanbul, and never came out. And the CCTV footage, security camera footage of him going in, but the, he never comes out. And his uh, fiance, who is Turkish, was waiting outside for him to come. She waited 11 hours. And the only thing that the security cameras have shown is uh, Saudi vehicles exiting the um, the consulate. Since then, Suspicions have grown. The Turks have released information selectively to journalists saying that they believe that he was uh, interrogated, beaten, and somehow killed inside the consulate, and then his body was dismembered and taken out. We have no proof of that yet. But yesterday, Monday, the Turks were allowed access to the consulate to search it. But before we saw them going in, we saw a cleaning crew go in. 
So who knows uh, what the Turks are going to find, because um, if there was a crime scene, it's probably being cleaned up. Meanwhile, international outrage and condemnation has been growing here in the States, particularly amongst uh, the Senate and Congress, uh, because it's outrageous in the sense that it, it, it um, represents a huge escalation in the way that journalists uh, killed and treated. This is a, um, a very well-respected, very well-known journalist, He's uh, 60 years old. He's been uh, working as an insider inside Saudi Arabia as well as as a journalist. He worked with the previous uh, king's um, government. He was, in fact, even a press spokesman for um, the Saudi ambassador in, in London. So he's an insider, and he knew what was going on, and that's what apparently made him dangerous to the present government and the young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman because he started writing about uh, politics and social movements and protests and other things that were going on inside Saudi from the very prominent platform of a Washington Post opinion column, which was picked up and, and published around the world and also even translated into Arabic. So what we know is that one of the best-known Saudi journalists walked into a Saudi diplomatic mission and never came out. That's, that's the sum of what we know. And what were the kinds of things that he was exposing that was getting the uh, Saudi government nervous and, and, and angry enough to, to do something like this? Well, um, the king of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, started uh, giving more and more power to one of his sons, Mohammed, back uh, a year or two ago. And Mohammed, who's a young man, took it upon himself to uh, send Saudi Arabia into war in Yemen. And uh, at the same time, crack down on dissent at home whilst seeking to diversify the economy away from oil and encourage foreign investment. And you might remember that last year he held this big international uh, business conference to which he invited Donald Trump. And there's that great picture of the, uh, the king and Trump and the president of Egypt holding this uh, with their hands on this glowing orb um, and um, the, the crown prince declares that he has a vision for 2030 to transform the kingdom. He loosens, uh, he loosens some controls on um, the religious police that enforce or used to enforce strict Islamic law in Saudi, and he allowed women to drive. But whilst all that was going on, there was still repression in the background, and this is what uh, Jamal Khashoggi picked up on and was writing about. For example... Uh, there were many women who were protesting and working to get the ban on women driving lifted. They were successful in that the ban was lifted, but they were arrested for protesting because the crown prince wanted the credit for lifting the ban. He did not want to be seen as giving in to popular demands and acceding to, um, to protests. So they were arrested. Um, other people were arrested overseas. And uh, Jamal was was chronicling this. He was writing about it from the very prominent position of a Washington Post column, and that angered uh, the Crown Prince and people in um, in Saudi Arabia, evidently, because he he knew what he was writing about. Because, as I said earlier, he was an insider. This wasn't uh, a journalist who was looking from the outside in. He'd worked inside. He knew the people. He knew the, the the mechanisms of power within the Saudi royal court and the royal family. And so he had that. Now, he was no longer working for the government. 
No, no, time. he had stopped a while. Yeah. He had stopped a while back. He had been a journalist for many years too. He yeah. he had edited a, 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 a mainstream Saudi paper called Al Watan. Uh, back in the 2000s, and uh, he'd, uh, had, he'd, he'd been pushed out of that job, and he'd done uh, various other journalism jobs. He also had a huge uh, Twitter following, and he was tweeting. He had nearly 2 million followers. And last year, 2017, we understand he was told to get off Twitter by the government uh, because it was, uh, it was annoying them. So he stopped tweeting. And at that point, he exiled himself to the United States. He no longer felt that he could work as a journalist inside Saudi, so he left. He set up uh, residence in Virginia. So then he was in basically working out of Virginia, but then he's in Turkey. What brought him back to? Uh, to well, he had a Turkish. He had a Turkish fiance. Right. Uh, he had met a woman uh, in Turkey um, whom he wanted to marry. When he uh, he was married in Saudi, but he was uh, he'd been he was divorced. I think that um, I don't know the reasons for the divorce, but he was divorced. And the the, the reason that he was going into the Saudi consulate in uh, Istanbul was to get documentation, some paperwork to prove that he was divorced oh, so, so that he could, he could marry his fiancée. Exactly. And so he had gone very, in there. This is a very basic uh, uh, yeah. paperwork. Uh, consular services. Business. The, the kinds Correct. of things. Okay. Consular services, the kinds of things you get. You know, you, you, you need uh, government services for. And apparently he had gone to the very same consulate a week earlier, I think on the 28th of September, and they had told him to come back a week later. And that's why he was going in. So you could construe that as they set him up. They knew he was coming back. They gave him an appointment. They knew that he needed the paperwork in order to marry his fiancée. So uh, he, 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 in some ways, he walked into a trap. And the last word we had heard was the phrase, the Saudi government is, is preparing to reveal that he was killed. And that was even the latest headlines Tuesday morning when we we're speaking. Where is that going? To say they're preparing to say something seems sort of odd. Is that just insider accounts or this is some official word from the Saudi government? And then they're talking about the claim is it looks like it's a botched uh, abduction, that he wasn't meant to be killed. Whether we believe that or not is another matter, but I'm just wondering how sort of the word seems to be coming out slowly and, and, and unclear. Well, look, this is me interpreting what I've read, the same as you, and, yeah. and maybe speculating a little bit. But this looks like the, um, the great spin mices of yes. public relations working the dark, the dark arts of trying to, um, you know, get, get out of a tight corner. It is obvious that the, the Turkish security services have tapes um right there was, there was plenty murder. of uh, word coming out that there's video and audio of all of this right there were reports that u.s uh national security had intercepted communications and had tapes so it seems obvious that uh at least from the outside reading what we know that the saudis are not going to be able to say he isn't uh he isn't dead and they weren't mm -hmm. responsible for something that went on in that consulate so we heard it yesterday, and President Trump picked it up. This could be, quote, rogue killers, end quote. Mm. What, what does that mean? Um, it means that they're going to say that this was an operation to apprehend him that went wrong. Somehow he died under interrogation, maybe, and that they spirited the body away. Now, usually and, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, you know, a lot of history and, and ongoing practice of journalists being abducted 
and and being kidnapped and held and why would they go to the extreme let's assume this was planned to have him killed it would seem rather extreme to have him murdered uh rather than maybe abducted and, and send a message that way this seems to go beyond well, I, the usual uh yeah or is that not unusual uh i wouldn't say it was usual but i mean yeah. look i i i honestly don't know one can't assume that 15 people, as, the, as we are told, who were sent in two aircraft to the consulate at the time that he was inside by one of the wealthiest nations around with a very strong intelligence service, mm-hmm. that they would botch something like this? Yeah, it's possible. Um, and so you could take the other view that this was intentional and this is uh, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, sending a very clear message. Don't mess with me and my government. Don't criticize us. Same thing could happen to you. But, yeah. That's a perfectly possible explanation. Just as, just as possible that this was a rogue uh, set of killers. I mean, the idea here is that they're trying to create some distance between the crown prince and this operation. They're trying to make us believe that the crown prince didn't know anything about it and that mm-hmm. these operatives were acting on their own as, as, a, as a rogue uh, element. So that's that's going to be perhaps the official line, and you know that's you could poke a hole in that by blowing at it. But from a practical standpoint, wouldn't, they wouldn't assume that the backlash would be so severe that it would not, you know, it would it would uh, backfire on them. Or is that the kind of mindset that these Saudi leaders have? You know, we will go to the extreme of killing someone and take the positive from that that they perceive versus all the backlash and 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 you know, negative response that comes down on them. It just seems like a, a lot to to do, and, and you're dealing with a lot of fallout from something that doesn't seem to be worth it, or do they just look at it like we have to show our iron fist uh, no matter what the fallout is? Well, let's just look at the track record on this. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you uh, look at Saudi Arabia is engaged in what humanitarian organizations call one of the most brutal wars that has been in many years, which is in Yemen, where Saudi-led forces are in the forefront of combating Shia Houthi rebels in Mm -hmm. Yemen. And uh, just a few weeks ago, one of the U.S.-supplied planes with U.S.-supplied munitions uh, dropped a bomb on a school bus and killed up to 40 people, many of them children. The condemnation from that was, uh, as far as Saudi was concerned, it was water off a duck's back. Yeah. They they don't care. They don't have a domestic constituency that you get in a democracy. Remember that this is a monarchy. They they don't have to deal with with a critical domestic press or politics. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia on our list, the Committee to Protect Journalists list of the most censored countries in the world, is number three behind North Korea and Eritrea. The so most, there is no, the most there is no ind- countries. The most censored countries yeah. in the world. Uh, it's number three um, because there, are, there is no independent uh, media there. Mm-hmm. And social media, if it starts going too far, gets censored or closed down. If you blog or post videos on YouTube or whatever, you, you're going to get in trouble. So the government, I don't think, cares too much about uh, the reaction domestically. And then internationally, Saudi Arabia has something that we all want, which is oil. Yeah. 
and uh, it's also incredibly wealthy. It has invested in many funds around the world, pension funds. Uh, it's got um, it's got enormous. It owns enormous chunks of the Western economy, and it's also one of the biggest buyers of U.S. defense equipment and arms. So they know uh, that we need them as much as they need us. So. I don't think that one journalist is going to give uh, the crown prince too much pause for thought if he, the crown prince, believes that the journalist is a danger. Are you surprised at President Trump's response that he mentioned at one press conference the uh, the arms deal and, and how lucrative that was versus someone he uh, then, of course, pointed out was not an American citizen, which not a, not surprising given his hatred of the press, but still deeply offensive, or is this just the way he acts? If an American president said that two years ago, I probably would have been surprised. I think my capacity for being surprised has been exhausted over the last few years. And I I think it's, it doesn't matter to me as a journalist whether Jamal Khashoggi was an American citizen or not. He was a U.S. resident journalist working for a U.S. paper, and he was murdered. Therefore, I would expect that the uh, president would stand up for the values that this country uh, upholds, namely the First Amendment and a free press, and would condemn that murder and would call for a credible and thorough investigation into it. I would not be trying to have his cake and eat it by saying that he was concerned, but at the same time, so far, he's not going to do anything. So I think it has to come from the top. Uh, if the State Department or the vice president condemns it, fine. But it has to come, I believe, from the president because we need a very clear signal that journalists' lives are not cheap. The huge, it, it fits into a bigger pattern of assassinations of journalists, particularly investigative journalists around the world, many of whom, most of whom, are actually killed with complete impunity. That's to say the people who order the assassination of these journalists never face trial, never face prosecution. We've had uh, two journalists, uh, investigative journalists, murdered in the European Union uh, in the last year. In fact, today is the first anniversary of the killing by car bomb of the uh, journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta. She was investigating corruption, international money laundering, and, 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 and shell companies. And then a few months later, a Slovak journalist and his girlfriend were shot to death in their apartment because he uh, was investigating organized crime and the uh, a branch of the Italian mafia that was working in Slovakia. Neither of those two cases have been solved. The people that ordered the killings are still free. So we have plenty of examples of brave investigative journalists being killed. And if this murder uh, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi sorry Jamal Khashoggi goes uh, unaddressed it just sends another signal that if you are the object of criticism or investigation and you're rich and you're powerful whether you're a politician or whether you're a uh, a drug cartel lord or or whatever you are that you just have money that you can silence that journalist uh, very easily and that can't be and one of the great uh, things that the Committee to Protect Journalists does, and of course we'll give you a shout-out at cpj.org, always uh, looking to raise money as well, and you do such great data and research and promotion of press rights. Tell us more about sort of the broad 
uh, problem of journalist uh, abuse and, and, and killing. I think your website, the latest count you had was 44 journalists killed in 2018 so far. Um, I don't know if that includes uh, Mr. Khashoggi, but obviously that's an unacceptable number no matter how large it is. Give people a sense of how often this happens that maybe they don't realize because the U.S. Uh, doesn't cover it as much as, as you do and, and some outlets that the danger is, is it gotten worse or always been as bad or in any way improved? Well, the repression of, of journalists is getting worse in yeah. that there are now more journalists in jail than ever. We started uh, CPJ, we began uh, compiling these statistics back in 1992. So that's the base year for this. No one else has, has been doing this work. So that's where our point of reference. And last year, 2017, was the worst year for the jailing of journalists and among some of the, the worst years for the killings of journalists. The, the killing figures vary according to um, where, where there are conflicts. But we, we, we reckon that there's nearly 1,400 journalists have been killed over the, that period since 92, and more than half of those, more than half, were not killed on the battlefield like we see in Hollywood movies of you know journalists on the front line. No, they weren't doing that. They were assassinated. They were targeted, killed uh, because of their reporting. So that's well over 800 journalists in that period. Um, many of them were investigating corruption and organized crime. And I've mentioned a couple of cases in Western Europe, but there are many other countries in the world where journalist lives are cheap. Uh, Mexico is one, for example, mm -hmm. where uh, there's been at least four assassinations of journalists so far this year. If you dare to write about corruption and the drug cartels and the connection between officials and corrupt politicians and organized crime, then you get put on a hit list and you can get killed. You get warned first. But, you know, if you continue, then there are a few brave journalists that do that. You get killed. Um Journalists in India, in Pakistan, have been killed. Even in countries like Brazil, which we think of as you know functioning democracies, outside of the the main cities like Sao Paulo and uh, Rio, journalists are killed in the interior. They, they, you know, there's a lot of drug running in in Brazil. They're covering things like the environment, illegal logging, uh, and illegal mining. They get killed. So we don't hear a lot about what they're doing, but these journalists are doing. Great work, you know, they're bringing uh, transparency and accountability on the pillaging of uh, the public's resources or the embezzlement of the public's funding. Kind of work that, you know, um, or, um, law enforcement should be doing, journalists are doing. You think this case of Mr. Khashoggi will help raise the attention? It obviously is getting attention now. But is, is this a one-off kind of uh, investigation into this this terrible trend because it's an American uh, resident, because it's an American newspaper, a major American newspaper? And how do we keep the focus on this down the line, and maybe get our government to do more to oppose it? Well, the, it it is it it is uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's a huge escalation. I mean, it's brazen luring a, a citizen into a diplomatic mission in a in a foreign country and presumably murdering him inside that place. But as you say, this is a, a U.S. resident working for a U.S. paper and from a country which has a very uh, strategic importance to the United States, particularly at this point. You know, let's, let's remember that the, uh, the U.S. is working with Saudi because Saudi is a, 
a bulwark against Iran in the region, and it also sits on a huge supply of oil, which we need. So the, um, the strategic importance of Saudi Arabia can't be underestimated. So that has raised the international profile of this case. But what I think we need is a credible international investigation. There has to be a path to justice for uh, Khashoggi, and there has to be, it can't be business as usual. The sheer brazenness of this crime means that there has to be some justice. Now, I think one of the things that is open to us is not a U.S. investigation, given some of the things I've said about the ties between the U.S. and and Saudi, Mm -hmm. certainly not a Saudi investigation, because that would be nothing but a whitewash. But there are mechanisms. There's the United Nations, for example. The United Nations Security Council can instruct the Secretary General of the UN to order an independent international organized, um, investigation. That has happened before with varying degrees of success. There was one into the uh, assassination of the uh, Lebanese Prime Minister Rafik Hariri. There was one into the uh, assassination of uh, Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan. And these, 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 orga- these uh, investigations can be done uh, preliminarily, at least, fairly quickly, in you know, four months or so. And they have the, the virtue of being independent and international. So I think something along those lines uh, might be the way to go in this case. Well, I thank you so much for talking to us. Everyone, please know that you go to the Committee to Protect Journalists website, cpj.org, for background information. Get on their emailing lists. I'm on them. It's it's such a such a great organization and, and such a terrible tragedy to have to deal with. But it's the great work you're doing, bringing the issue out and promoting uh, the needs for press freedom. And as, as you mentioned, not only were journalists being killed, but jailed and abused and abducted. Um, and hopefully the attention this gets will, will make, make things better and, and improve them as we go along. Well, thank you, Joe, and thank um, for your interest in this. And um, I hope your, your listeners will appreciate the, the true value of the work of, of independent journalists, bringing them information so that they can be informed citizens in a democracy. And thanks to the work you're doing. I think that's going to occur. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you to uh, Robert Mahoney for that great insight. Now we turn to Thomas Lippmann. He, of course, is the author and uh, Saudi Arabian expert and a former Middle East reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, has some great uh, thoughts and, and views on what it's like for journalists there, both back in the day and today, and what it really means to Saudi Arabia to have this kind of uh, censorship and, and brutal authority over uh, journalism when it tries to uh, expose the corruption there. So uh, let's hear from Mr. Lippman. And hello, Mr. Lippman. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for speaking with us. And of course, you are Thomas Lippman, longtime author and Saudi Arabia expert, uh, also part of the Middle East Institute. And in uh, your past, a longtime reporter for the Washington Post, which, of course, has been in the news lately, unfortunately, because of the, the uh, assumed death of Jamal Khashoggi, their uh, contributor in uh, Saudi Arabia. Wanted to get your view in general of how the press is treated in Saudi Arabia. But in, in what we're hearing, this is uh, revenge, uh, likely revenge from the uh, Saudi leadership. What can this say about the way they treat reporters and, and anyone who speaks out against them, given your long Uh, knowledge and research there? Well, the press in Saudi Arabia is almost entirely under the thumb of the government on any matters relating to the monarchy, religion, or the form of government. 
if you go to Saudi Arabia, you can find some quite useful reporting about the condition of the roads, construction at the airport, uh, education issues, right? What you won't find is anything that could be construed in any way as challenging the authority of the government. And I have talked to newspaper editors in Saudi Arabia about this. The rules are unwritten, um, but they all know pretty much what they are. And the only people writing material that actually challenges the government or criticizes the ruling family are outside Saudi Arabia. And that would include Mr. Khashoggi, who was writing for the Washington Post and actually was a resident of the U.S., but had uh, been from Saudi Arabia, had worked in the Saudi Arabian government and had great insider knowledge, but obviously his his uh, outspoken uh, approach and, and revelations of, of what was going on there were angering the top. Is that unusual to have this kind of vicious, uh, murderous revenge on a yes. reporter, or is this a new level of violence for them? Yes, this is... This is, in my 40-plus years of experience with Saudi Arabia, this is without precedent. And the fact is that there are other long-term, quite outspoken, Saudi-born, exiled dissidents on whom the Saudis have never attempted to exert any violence or do anything of this nature. There are examples of people in exile finding that their families are persecuted, for example. But by that, I mean even incarcerated, but not murdered. This is one reason this is getting so much attention is that it's an extraordinary crossing of some line. And of course, uh, we'll let people know you're the author of several books related to Middle Eastern issues and, and revelations, understanding Islam, Hero of the Crossing, of course, Saudi Arabia on the edge. Tell us about your time as a reporter in the Middle East. You were Middle East bureau chief for the Washington Post and did a lot yes. of reporting on. Tell us when and, and, and what you covered there. That was 1975 to 79. I was based in Cairo, and most of my time, of course, was consumed by President Sadat's peace initiative. I was there in Cairo when Sadat made the famous trip to Jerusalem, for example, and that was a big story. But I also went, uh, I traveled around the region extensively. My experience in Saudi Arabia which is now extensive, and I've been there more as a private person than I was in my capacity as a Washington Post reporter, my experience is that after you've been there a little bit, <clears throat> you find out that there are things you don't do while you're in the country. But in general, they've been much more sensitive to things written in Arabic for an Arab audience than things written in English for a European or American audience. So, for example, my book, Saudi Arabia on the Edge, was banned from the country by the Ministry of Culture and Information. But I wasn't. I, I, was, I, I got a couple of visas after that book came out, and nobody bothered me when I got there. And that's pretty typical. When, once you're in the country, you can go talk to whoever's willing to talk to you. You don't have a minder. It's not, it's not like Iraq under Saddam. Is there a great presence for U.S. journalists there in recent times, or is it not really, uh, are they either not allowed or just not? We know that U.S. journalism has cut back in foreign coverage in general in many ways, but are they free to come and go, as, as you mentioned you are, or is there cutbacks on that? The AP, the Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg, I believe, have resident correspondents there, yeah. as does Reuters and AFP. But they didn't have, apparently, the inside that Khashoggi had, where he's reporting what he 
was able to expose given his contacts and inside view? Or is that not true? Were they doing similar kinds of reporting and perhaps Khashoggi was targeted because of who he was? The, the, the wire service reporters were doing what wire service reporters do, right? They weren't there to make political statements, right? They were there to cover economic issues, social issues, and regional security issues just like any other reporter, which they did. Khashoggi, and, and they didn't write opinion articles. Right, which is Chris, what he had. He was doing columns and opinion. Khashoggi twice was editor of Al-Watan, which was, the let's call it, the least obsequious Saudi newspaper. But he was fired from that job twice. And then when he came up with the money to create his own uh, cable news service based in, I think, Bahrain, it lasted about 24 hours before it was yanked. So he had certain grievances against the regime with which he had more or less fallen out. I just don't think it ever occurred to him that they would take this kind of action. And by the way, this story that it was some kind of botched or rogue operation that the government didn't the government didn't order this killing. I mean, if you believe that, I have a nice bridge in Brooklyn I can sell you. Yeah, that sounds pretty uh, vague and, and unbelievable at best. But are you surprised that the U.S. government, particularly Trump, President Trump would take that approach and, and try to keep good relations with Saudi Arabia, given both the arms deals that, that we have with them and, of course, the oil supplies. First of all, I'm never surprised by anything Donald Trump does yeah. or says. gotten over that. Second, the Saudis are well aware that the United States is not dependent on them for oil anymore. So we that, have is a, not a, that is not a, that's kind of a misnomer that, that we really need their oil supplies? We don't. Yeah. We Americans don't. Europeans and Japanese do, but we don't. We Between our own domestic production and what we can buy from Mexico, Canada, from the Chevron operations in Angola, I mean, we, we, we can do without Saudi oil. Most of the Saudi oil that's imported into the United States is imported by them mm-hmm. because they have that huge refinery down in Port Arthur, Texas. So naturally they import their own oil to run through that. But if they didn't, we would hardly import much Saudi oil at all. And how has that changed so much, the oil embargoes of the 70s? Well, between Canadian production and new fracking technology, just has changed the whole picture. So U.S. reliance on Saudi oil is not what it used to be. I don't think most people realize that, and that's an important part of this. Would it be then more the defense contracts that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia that's making some hesitant to take action, as wrong as that that may be? Finish up on oil. Since 2009... Mm -hmm. The country that buys the most oil from Saudi Arabia has been China, okay? Not the United States. On the question of the defense contracts, look, we have a 75-year history of a relationship with Saudi Arabia, which was always a transactional relationship. Stated government policy that they were, we were there for economic and security reasons. We weren't there to tell them how to run their society. Right. And over that time, the Saudis have on several occasions adopted positions or policies that infuriated Congress and the White House. And every time the relationship has emerged unscathed, if not stronger, after it blew over because the two countries have needed something from each other. Right? And my favorite example was Jimmy Carter, who made human rights the cornerstone of his foreign policy, even he was deferential to the Saudis. I was in Riyadh when he got there, and I saw it. Even he was deferential to the Saudis because he wanted something from them, namely endorsement of the Sadat Peace Initiative and the Camp David Accords. Right. So there's always something. Arms sales is part of it. We have large-scale American industrial investments in Saudi Arabia. 
We want Saudi cooperation on countering Iran, on counterterrorism. A lot of things that we and the Saudis do together. And if you read the annual position paper or posture statement of the CENTCOM commander, the commander of the U.S. Central Command, you'll see the extent to which our security operations are integrated, even though we don't have a lot of troops in Saudi Arabia. So the, the effect is still there. The, the interest is still there. And when you were there back in the day, what, how were reporters and journalists treated in, in the Middle East? Was it dangerous then as well or not nearly like it is now? In my time, it wasn't dangerous until the kidnapping of what's his name, Anderson, in Lebanon in the late 1970s. Is that Terry Anderson? Uh, Terry Anderson, yeah. yes. He was an AP I, reporter, correct? He was kidnapped off the tennis court, right? Yes. I had played tennis on that same court oh, a couple of weeks earlier. Journalists were never targets. We were in danger when we tried to cross the red line in the Lebanese Civil War, went down to the hotel district. Mm -hmm. Trying to go by road from Damascus to Beirut in those days was, in fact, dangerous. But we were not the targets. And not official targets. I mean, this is official government leadership doing this isn't, uh, as they would say, rogue or... or terrorists, as we like to think of uh, independent right. groups. This is actual hierarchy of the government doing this. Why, why has that been become the norm? Oh, I don't know that it is the norm. That's okay. one reason everybody's so shocked. Is there a concern this could become more common, or has the backlash been pretty good that, that maybe that'll quell things uh, and make people think twice down the line? Even, even if Khashoggi's dead and the prince ordered it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Saudis are hardly the worst offenders on this front. Right. I mean, there are plenty of people outside the Middle East, beginning with Burma, where the record is really pretty dismal. And so I, I, I just don't think—look, I remember Libya was part of my territory, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually I stopped going there because the restrictions on what I could do got so tight it wasn't worth it. Right. You know, you wind up sitting there listening to Gaddafi spout nonsense for three hours, bored out of your mind, and then you left. So I stopped going to Libya because it wasn't worth it. I was always able to go to um, Syria, for example, under President Hafez al-Assad. He even let me interview his national security advisor. And in fact, when, when the Washington Post had to move its bureau out of Beirut, like everybody else, the Syrians invited me to move the Washington Post bureau to Damascus. Now, whether they would do that today, I yeah. doubt. That would be, that'd be quite a stretch, you would think. I haven't been in Iraq in quite a while, for example. I, I don't know what would happen, but Western news organizations have bureaus there. They file all the time. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time talking to us. Of course, we've been talking to Thomas Lippman. You are a veteran reporter for The Washington Post and now author of several books on Saudi Arabia. We can tell people to go to Amazon.com or elsewhere and look for Saudi Arabia on the Edge. And, of course, you're with the Middle East Institute. Uh, great pleasure to talk to you, sir, and I thank you for your insight. And that's all for this week's edition of Joe's Media Corner. Thank you for listening. Hope you got some good insight into the issue of journalists and the dangers they face and also the uh, Jamal Khashoggi situation. Hopefully uh, justice will prevail, the truth will come out, and people realize what journalists go through overseas and in this country, the dangers they face, and urge those in charge, both overseas and in our country, to do more to protect their rights, their safety. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.